following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. So everybody take a good look at the screen right now. You saw that image on the front of the bulletin. It's on the screen. This is the kind of thing that really gets people excited to be at church, I'm telling you. This picture, this phrase, everybody's just so excited. So let me give you a little bit of introduction as best I can. Last Sunday we were talking about meaningful membership and this Sunday, today, goes hand in hand. In fact, it's really a second part of the same series, the same message. Membership and discipline. So let me just say a couple of things before we get into this. There's, there's a main passage of Scripture we'll, we'll look at, but there's two other really major passages we need to talk about briefly just to try to get a bigger picture and, and perhaps in another setting, maybe at another time, perhaps Wednesday night even, we'll go deeper into one of the other two passages to try to help round out our understanding of what we're talking about here. But let me just begin by saying this. I'm a terrible person. Now, I have my moments. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm trying to help people understand what we're talking about and why it's so critical. I don't mean just, I don't mean optional, I don't mean a good suggestion. This is critical to a healthy church, a God honoring church. So, let me go back to my statement. I'm a terrible person. And I do have my moments when I'm not, but. All things considered, I'm a terrible person. You, if you know me, if you think you know me, then I pray maybe you have a different opinion. And that's great. But your opinion may not be founded in reality. Now, when I, I had this kind of, it was almost like an epiphany this morning even. I, I was studied, I, I was ready, I, I, knew, I know this scripture, these three scriptures that we'll mention, but I, I know them well. I've, I've read them plenty of times, I've studied them. I, I know what we're, what we're supposed to be talking about here, but I'm feeling the weight this morning of a different passage. It has nothing really to do with this one. And just briefly, I'll summarize it to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 18 to the end, talks about uh, remembering when you got saved. Remember when Jesus found you. And Paul goes on to write there in that first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, just remember your calling. There weren't many noble, weren't many strong, weren't, you know, weren't many, there weren't, wasn't a lot of all-stars when Jesus found you, according to the world's standards. But that was on purpose. Because if God were to gather up who the world calls all-stars, 
then there would be a, a, a confusion about who should get the credit when God did a bunch of cool stuff. Right? Because people would look at those people that they thought were already awesome and say, well, of course He used them. Look at them. they they got all these abilities. they got all these gifts. And, you know, of course. Why would He not assemble the all-stars? But God did just the opposite. God took the, for lack of a better term, the rejects in the world's eyes so that when He did some amazing things, miraculous things, supernatural things, the world would have no option but to look at that and say, how did that happen? Oh, God did that. So, I'm kind of resonating with that this morning because when I do some self-examination and I look, take a good hard look in the mirror and, and try to be honest, I, I said this out loud to myself this morning. I have thought things way worse than I've done. But I've done things way worse than I should have. Let me say that one more time just so you understand what I'm saying. I have thought things way worse than what I've actually done, but I've done things way worse than I should have. If I'm, if I'm going to lay out what the Bible says I'm supposed to be as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus... I'm a terrible person. Now, secondly, well, let me just interject. Thank you all for not saying amen. appreciate that. All right, secondly, this right here, what we're about to do, is a very difficult teaching. So I'm going to ask you now, please, 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 try your best to pay attention. To, to stay engaged, to be focused, because uh, it'll be easy if you if you tune out for a minute and then tune back in, and you hear me say something, you might think, well, that that man is a lunatic. Well, and 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 I may be, but not because of this, because I'm gonna just say what the Bible says. All right, fair enough. All right, here we go. That was the introduction to the introduction. Yeah, uh, don't worry, I, I do have something that has a time on it today, so y'all are only mildly in danger. Uh, have you ever heard this phrase? And I don't don't raise your hands, but I bet everybody has. Here it is. Ready? You can't judge me. Have you ever heard it? Have you ever said it? Don't raise your hand. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, that's true. But because that's true, everybody ought to be terrified. Because God is going to judge you. How about that? Now, let me break that phrase down for you, okay? In case you've, I feel like everybody's probably heard that in some context. Maybe you've said it, maybe you've thought it. But here's what's going on with that statement. I'll translate it. You can't judge me. Translation. Leave me alone and let me sin in peace. That's what that means. Now, now, let me tell you why it means that. Because when you say or you hear someone say, you can't judge me, that is far less about the sin and much more about who's judging. Does that make sense? It's a diversion. It's a diversion away from the subject at hand, which is the sin. So when you say, you can't judge me, 
you're trying to draw attention away from the fact that, oh, somebody's noticed this sin in my life, I better change the subject. Which is what we always do because what's the first thing you do when somebody says something bad about something you've done? I see it in, in, uh, in mainly in young people, but you know what? Adults do the same thing. Uh, you did so and so. Yeah, well, you're not so good yourself. You've done this, this, and this. So what's that? Let me direct that attention away from what I just did. Let me point out some things you've done that aren't so good. Which doesn't... You see what's happening? It never denies what was pointed out to begin with. It just tries to shift the focus away from it. You understand what I'm saying? Discipline is a terrible thing if you don't understand it. So when we think in terms of you can't judge me, which, by the way, Jesus did say, judge not lest you be judged, but He went on to say, be careful when you judge, because whatever standard you use, that same standard will be applied to you. So understand, it's not about the judgment. It's about the standard and the person doing the judging. Because here's what we have to understand about discipline in general and specifically in the church. And I pray we'll see this crystal clear in this passage of Scripture today. Discipline is good. Not only is discipline good, discipline is for our good. And the Scriptures will make that Painfully obvious, I pray. And in fact, in, in the passage I read, the, the brief two verses I read that will be quoted in today's passage from Proverbs chapter 3, pretty much says that outright. Don't despise the teaching or instruction of the Lord. Don't be upset at the discipline of God because He's loving you. He's loving you through discipline. So let's get started here. Oh, by the way, I should say before I read this, it's not unreasonable to expect Christian behavior from Christian people. That's not unreasonable. If you call yourself a Christian, act like one. Right? Now, we're not going to apply that standard to those who don't know Jesus. So if a lost person comes through that door and acts like a lost person, everybody needs to just take a pill and chill out. Okay? Because to try to impose legalistic, righteous requirements on someone who has no idea who Jesus is would be sinful. Does that make sense? And sometimes the church gets a little, you know, ahead of itself in that regard because people come to church and they don't act like church folk. Well, okay, maybe they don't know Jesus. Maybe that's, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But when we're talking about Christians, it's not unreasonable to expect Christian behavior from people who call themselves Christians. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 3. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, down to verse 11. Here's what the Bible says, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes or fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the source and perfecter or author and finisher or pioneer and completer of our faith. For the joy that lay before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children. My son, here it is, Proverbs 3, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and punishes every son whom He receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they, the human fathers, they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But He does it for our benefit so that we can share His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Father, in Jesus' name I pray You will take this Word, give us understanding, give us clarity, and Lord, help us to be obedient to the truth You have set before us. For Your glory and our good, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This passage of Scripture speaks about discipline in a general fashion with a view towards the particular context of the church. So if you think about discipline in general, that's why the Scripture talks about human fathers versus our Heavenly Father and what that looks like. So we start out by considering Jesus. Verses 3 and 4 talks about who Jesus is. What did Jesus do? He endured hostility from sinners against Himself. So it was just the opposite, right? He is the righteous judge. He's the one that ought to be handing out the the judgment for sin, and yet He's allowing Himself to be mistreated by sinners. And so the the writer of Hebrews points us to Jesus, look at the end of verse 3, so that you won't grow weary, so you won't give up, so you won't lose heart. Now, why, why would He say that? Because we're likely to lose heart. Because if we're being disciplined by the Lord, it's likely that we'll be discouraged during the time we're being disciplined. Because the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we don't need to grow weary, we don't need to give up, because we need to think about Jesus. Because the the next verse, verse 4, reminds us that we, while we struggle against sin... We haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding our blood. Jesus did. Jesus shed His blood for us. So He is the example to which we should look to help understand how to process 
this whole idea of discipline. So we consider Jesus, but then the second thing we do is consider the father-son relationship. So you look at verses 5 and 6, it's almost as if the audience here, these Christians, have forgotten the whole father-son relationship. That's why the quote there in verse 5, in verse 6, is going back to Proverbs 3, which is the passage I read at the beginning, quoting from that wisdom to say, don't you see that God and, for that matter, Solomon and, for that matter, the author of Hebrews, is addressing the audience as sons, as children of God, reminding them of the relationship. Don't you understand there's a purpose? We all have a part to play. You know, when we're growing up as children, young people who are here today, don't you understand as as uh, difficult as the relationship may seem from time to time, your parents have a specific role to play in your life? They're supposed to instruct you and raise you up in the nurture and the instruction, the admonition of the Lord, try to keep you from harm later in life so that when they do release you as an adult, you're prepared. You've learned right and wrong. You've learned there are consequences for every action, good or bad. You don't get to just go through life and everything's given to you. And then, I mean, some people would have us believe that, but that is not reality. There are consequences for our actions, good and bad. And parents have the responsibility to ingrain those things in their children so that when we grow up and we are adults and we have to fend for ourselves, we're not helpless, we're not ignorant of these things. We know how the world works and we understand right from wrong. So the command there, don't take the Lord's discipline lightly. Don't lose heart when you're reproved or corrected. The reason why is the Lord is disciplining you because He loves you. It's right there in the text. Verse 7, God is dealing with you as sons. What, is, what son is there a father does not discipline? We're His children. So when we look at the, the text and understand what's really going on, even though it might be unpleasant, we shouldn't be upset about it. We should pause, and this is so difficult when it's happening. I mean, young people in the room, think about when you get called down or you get punished for something. Is that like the happiest moment of your life? Well, no, of course not. It's terrible. But the effect is positive. Because what do you typically do? Why do you think, why do you think, well, I know why now, but I often used to think, why in the world is my father so intent on spanking me and whipping my rear end all the time? It just seems like it's a, a national pastime, like he just enjoys it. You know, it happens every night. I get a whipping whether I need it or not. But, here the, the harsh truth is, I did need it. Probably um, needed more than I got. Because if he'd have known everything, <laughs> I'd have probably got, right? I'd have got more than, than, I, than I got. But here, here's the point. I'm 50 years old. I'm still talking about, with great clarity, things that happened to me 
40 years ago or more. They're ingrained in my mind. They made an impression. You know what that means? It means I learned something. I didn't like it when it was happening. But it's still with me. It still has a bearing on my life today. So let's talk about the necessity of discipline. Verses 7 and 8. The necessity of discipline. We endure suffering. The command is uh, there to endure as discipline. It goes back to verse 4 talking about struggling against sin. God's dealing with us as sons. We all receive discipline from our fathers. A lack of discipline from God demonstrates a lack of relationship with God. Did you know, this may be, uh, I don't know if this is, is common to everyone. I feel like it would be. If you're, if you're a Christian, and you're following Jesus, you're striving to follow Jesus, I feel like this is a common experience. When you sin, there's this, conviction, there's this, uh, ugh, it's like a, a, a feeling in the pit of your stomach, like when you do something wrong that's against what God would have you do, you, you don't feel good about it. You feel sick, you know, you should. And, and so when, when that happens, when people would come to me often and ask me, preacher, I don't know what to do, I, it's like I'm trying to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing, and I hate it. Well, that's good. That's really good. Because if you came in here and told me, uh, well, I don't care. i do whatever I want. Then I would say, do you know Jesus? But if you belong to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is inside you and governing who you are, then guess what? When you do something contrary to God's Word and His will for your life, then you're, I hope you feel terrible. I hope that affects you because that shows some conviction of sin, some acknowledgement of the struggle between truth and the lie of our enemy. And so the necessity of discipline is to guide us back to the right path. Verse 9 is our response to discipline. We respected our earthly fathers for their discipline, so we should infinitely more submit to God because He is the Father of spirits and He gives life. Right? So if, if, we, if we can respect an earthly parent for showing us right from wrong and punishing us for wrong and rewarding us for right, if we can respect that process, then we should way, way more submit to God who gives us eternal life and forgiveness. And so... The, the stakes are, are much higher. But there's a benefit. There's a very clear benefit. Verses 10 and 11, the last two verses. The benefits of discipline. Our earthly fathers disciplined us as children. They did as they, it seemed good to them. But God disciplines us for our good. And look at the purpose. This is the whole point of discipline. And, and I know you're looking, hey, well, this is the, we're on the last two verses and we're not... Uh, you know, still got time left. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, I got more. Uh, so, he, here's the thing. This is the benefit of discipline. I want everybody to look in verse ten. Look at the end of verse ten. Everybody needs to see this. This is really important. 
What is the benefit of God's discipline to His children? So that we can share His holiness. If you were here Wednesday night, we were in 1 Peter and we were talking about holiness. We were talking about the fact that He who called you is holy, therefore you should be holy in all your conduct. You be holy because I'm holy. That's what God says to us. You be holy because I'm holy. Which is why at the very beginning I made this statement. It is not unreasonable to expect Christian behavior from Christian people. In fact, it's on the other end of the spectrum from unreasonable. It should be normal. If you're going to stand and proclaim, I belong to Jesus Christ. He has died for my sins. And because of Him, I'm forgiven. And I've been granted eternal life by the grace of God. And I'm going to heaven when I die. And while I'm here on this earth, I'm going to live every moment best I can to follow Jesus. And to to give Him glory. That's, That's a Christian. So that person, who I'm talking about, do you think it's unreasonable to expect of that person to act like a Christian? No, it is not. It's very expected, which brings us to church discipline. If we have this purpose, this benefit, we share in the holiness of God. We're reminded in the last verse, verse 11, that yeah, when it's happening, no discipline seems enjoyable or pleasant. It seems painful, but it brings a future reward that is far better than the present consequence. There's a reward. We have to keep our eyes on the prize, so to speak. An eternal perspective. Right? When we're being punished, why are we being punished? Because somewhere, somehow, at some point, we veered off the path. Right? If we veered off the path, who is it that's going to lovingly, gently, maybe not so gently sometimes, nudge us back onto the path? Who's doing that? God. God. And why is He doing it? He loves you. He loves you. And at the moment, no punishment feels good. But there is a deeper purpose pointing us to holiness. Sharing the holiness of God. I love the way this verse ends. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, this passage is is pretty clear, I feel like. I mean, you can just read... I've read you the text and I've commented on it a bit and tried to give some clarity, but you can pretty much read Hebrews 12, 3-11, and I feel like... I feel like it's understandable, right? I feel like you can you can read that and, and know exactly what it's saying. But here's the other two texts of Scripture we need to briefly look at that will, I, I think, give us a little bit more rounded out meaning. So, in, in answering these two questions, how do we do it and why do we do it? So if you'll flip back in your Bible to the very very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 18. I want to show you briefly a passage in Matthew 18 that speaks to how we 
should proceed in church discipline. And then we're going to talk about why. And, and let me just say, with regard to what we're doing, and, and why, why is there even such a thing as church discipline? Let me very, very clearly and very simply say this. This is uh, from a book on church discipline by a man named Jonathan Lehman, really talented writer. Here's what he said about this. God, listen, God wants His people to be known and marked off. He wants a line between His people and the world. There should be a difference, right? If, you, if, if I follow Jesus and this person doesn't, there ought to be a difference in our lives, right? I mean, that, that's normal. That's, that's expected, right? If I follow Jesus and somebody else doesn't, we should not look the same. We should not live the same. we got different beliefs, different goals, different purposes, everything, right? So God wants a line between His people and the world. He wants us to be holy because He's holy. One of the church's primary jobs is to protect the name of Jesus. And, and how are we doing with that? How are we doing that with that, really? What, what does the church look like as far as sin and, and things like that compared to just the outside world? Right? How many times do you, have you seen on the news... Well, this person in this church got arrested for this. This person in this church, you know, this the, the divorce rate in the church is 50%, same as it is outside the church. You know, uh, and this crime's been committed, or this, this person that's on this um, list of whatever, you know, and it's in the church, right? It's not outside the church. So how are we doing with that? If, the, if one of the church's primary responsibilities is to protect the name of Jesus. You know why you know why we're not I'm gonna just say this real quick and then we're gonna look at this passage. This is why we're not doing too well. Churches as a whole, there are exceptions. Many churches don't want to practice biblical church discipline. And honestly all it is it's another word for Mass accountability and, and encouragement. That, that, that's what it is. That's another way to look at church discipline. It's accountability. It's, it's hey, if you, I, I'm, I'm standing up here, and, and if you see me living, acting, speaking in a way that does not honor Christ, then you have the right to pull me aside and say, hey, I noticed this, and it, and then I noticed it again. It seemed like it might be, you know, a, a pattern. What's, are you okay? What's going on? Because that doesn't look like that. That doesn't honor Jesus, and that may cut me, and it may offend me. But you know what? If I can't demonstrate otherwise, then that's the right thing to do. But it's not just me. It's all of us. So if, if, any, if, if we're following Jesus together, if we're a spiritual family and we notice a trend or a pattern or something in someone's life that does not 
honor Jesus that, does, that is not consistent with the Word of God, then we should, in love, try to help with that. Try to encourage to, to, to come back to the, to the course. Does that make sense? Here's how, here's how we do that. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Here's what the, the Bible says about that. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. See, one-on-one, in private. It's, it's always trying to keep it as small as, and, and as private as possible. And look what it says. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So, best case scenario, somebody notices a pattern of sin in your life, they pull you aside one-on-one, say, hey, this, I'm worried about you. This doesn't line up with what the Bible says, and, and you say you're following Jesus, but this doesn't match up. Are, are you okay? We need to talk. We, I need to pray for you. I need to, can I help you somehow? And if then there's repentance and conviction, and you're, you're right, you know, I've been struggling with this, I just need to turn away from it, I need to get back to the right path. Then guess what? That's a, that's a win, one-on-one, you're done. But look what the text says after that. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses every fact may be established. So in verse 16, it's not one-on-one, now it's one and three. So it's like a more, uh, like a, let's, let's kick it up a notch, try to show love, encouragement, care, and compassion. Hey, we care about you. We don't want this sin in your life. We don't want you to have to be dealing with this. And this is not good for you. And it doesn't honor Jesus. So, let's, you know, let's turn, come on, let's turn back. This, this is, it's better for you to follow Jesus. And, and notice that the context is never, never, please let, let, let me make sure everybody hears this. Church discipline is never, 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 See what I'm doing? I'm pointing the finger. Let me get a mean look on my face. No, it's never like that. That is when people will respond, well, what right do you have to judge me? It's when people come at you like that, as if, oh, I'm holier than you. I don't have sin in my life. I don't ever need encouragement for that. That's nonsense. Every one of us needs encouragement. Every one of us from time to time will need to be nudged back onto the path. It's always... Always. Did you hear me? Always. In love. With a view towards reconciliation. Toward repentance. It's, it's love, encouragement, compassion. It's never pointing my finger, looking down my nose at you like I'm some, you know. That, it's never like that. It's always in love. And maybe that's why a lot of us don't do it because we, you know, it's been messed up and hasn't been done correctly. So it's one, then it's two or three, but look at this. Verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, take it to the church. Take it to the church. This is the last straw, so to speak. If an entire body of believers, like right here, all the Christians in the room were to gather around a straying brother or sister that has up to this point refused 
to repent and turn from their sin and gather around and just try to communicate in the clearest, uh, most compassionate way, we love you. This sin is, is killing you. Please, please turn from this. Can't you see how much this is hurting you? Please repent. Please turn back to Jesus. We love you. We don't want this for you. That's church discipline. It's corrective. It's a view toward redemption. How, how can I show you the, the maximum amount of love and care? Please, please turn away from your sin. Please turn to Jesus. The whole church. Now, it would take a deep-rooted rebellion against God to not be overcome by that level of love and compassion. That, that's why it's progressive. One-on-one. Then, if that doesn't work, take a couple people with you. Then it's three-in-one. Then if that doesn't work, the church, in one accord... We love you. We care about you. This sin is harming your life. Please turn back to Jesus. Please repent. And that's the third level, but that's not the end. Because when you read the next verse, if they won't even listen to the whole church expressing care and love, you see what it says? They've got to go at least temporarily. It's not permanent because there's always a view to redemption, but it's treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as someone who does not know Jesus. You know why? Because if, if somebody is so in love with their sin at that point that they won't turn away from sin and turn to Jesus when all the whole church loves them, if you're so in love with your sin at that level, I'm worried you may be going to hell. I'm worried you may not know Jesus. You may not be a Christian. Because at the root of the Christian relationship with Jesus is conviction of the Holy Spirit, repentance from sin. And, and, and yeah, it may not come immediately all the time, but when, it, when someone comes to you in love and, and care and compassion and tries to help you, there's a conviction, there's a repentance. No, you're right, you're right. I, got, I, need to, I don't need that. I need to turn away from that. But a, a, a consistent, persistent unwillingness to let go of sin and, and grab hold of Jesus. That's a deeper issue. And that's why church discipline takes that strong of a stance at the final progression. Because it poisons the church. Sin, let me, let me just tell you, and this is, this is true for me, it's true for everybody in every church. Sin that is held on to refusing to repent, refusing to turn away from it. That's the opposite of pursuing the holiness of Jesus Christ. And it's poison to the church.
it will poison the whole fellowship. If people want to try to coexist, I want to say I love Jesus, but I want to live like I love the devil. I want to say I follow Jesus, but I want to live like I don't. That, that's, that can't happen. And it can't be permitted in the context of the local church. That's what the Scriptures are teaching us. That's why this teaching is so, so difficult. Because who wants people all up in their business pointing out where they've sinned? Nobody wants that. But guess what? It's, it's healing. It's healing to your heart. If you, if you really know Jesus and He knows you, and you may be sitting here today, I, I, just studying this, it's like the Holy Spirit was sitting here thumping me in the head, reminding me of all my sin. It's terrible. Terrible. But it's healing. Because you know what happens when the Holy Spirit reminds you of your sin? Convicts you? Because God doesn't remind you of sin that's been forgiven, but He does convict you of sin that hadn't been repented of. Whew, that's good. Write that down. That was really good. God never brings up past sin that's forgiven. But He will always bring up sin and convict you of it if you hadn't repented. So that gives you the opportunity then to repent and find forgiveness. Right? Alright, that's the how. The last thing's the why. And this will be the, the quickest part, I promise. Oh dear. Yeah, it'll be quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the last major passage about church discipline. And, and just to summarize, you remember Corinth, wicked city, sinful city, lots of trouble, churches having issues. There was immorality, like blatant immorality. First Corinthians chapter 5 tells a story of a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Alright, so there's there's sexual immorality. There is a relationship in, in the church now. Remember what I said. It's not outside. I'm talking about we're not expecting non-Christians to live like Christians. We're expecting Christians to live like Christians. There is an immorality situation. There is a situation where these people are not married, but they're in a relationship. And Paul says, what in the world are y'all doing? It's like this doesn't even bother you at all. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. It means this situation was so bad, even the sinners don't allow this, and this is in the church. Long story short, why did Paul take such an issue with this? Verse 2, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Verse 6, your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? In other words, a little bit of sin that's not dealt with will poison the whole church. And he says, Therefore, verse 8, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven, with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he said, I didn't mean the people in the world. I'm talking about in the church. But look what he says in verse 13. The last statement. 
It's a quote from Deuteronomy. Remove the evil person from among you. So this is like the, the why, and, and this, is, this is going back to that, that quote I read you from Jonathan Lehman just a moment ago. One of the primary jobs of the church is to protect the name of Jesus. It's not about pointing a finger. It's not about trying to say, I'm better than you, I'm holier than you, I don't have as much sin as you, because that's not true. It's about all, a whole church full of broken people trying to help each other find healing in Jesus. That's what church discipline, biblically and correctly done, is all about. We are all, in fact, Jonathan Lehman actually had another quote, let me read it to you. That's what discipline is all about. Helping one another grow in Christ-likeness by correcting sin. That's church discipline. And that's why it's so vital. Because if we're trying to protect the name of Jesus, you know what? We can't just sit back and say, well, that's, uh, that's not really any of my business. You know, that's their lives. They can do what they want. Yeah, they can do what they want until they bring it into the church. The church is a different context. And that's the difference. The church has a responsibility. That's why membership is so important. That's why holiness is so important. Alright, y'all are hanging with me and I, I'm thankful. Let me finish up. I know when I do this, everybody's going to think we're done. I'm going to shut my Bible. There you go. Alright, so I'm, I'm on the conclusion now. Alright. I, I had a mostly... No, it was, I had a really good childhood. I, well, mostly. My, uh, my parents parted ways when I was a junior in high school. And that was kind of a, a blip on the radar because that was, up until that point, everything was awesome. And after that, it was a little difficult. But here's the thing. I formed my perspectives about parenting and discipline by observing my own family. And many of us do that. But I never fully understood the struggles of being a parent until I became a parent. Right? I mean, we, we have three... Wonderful, wonderful girls. But we didn't understand the difficulty that our own parents had to deal with until we had our own children. And, and many times we were told that. Oh, you'll understand one day. Like, no, I already understand. You're wrong. You're terrible. You don't love me. You're whipping me all the You know, and that's, that's silliness. That's the silliness of a child. But then you grow up, you become an adult. We get married, we have children, and then, oh, wow. How much I didn't know and how right they were. We didn't understand how difficult it would be to love someone so much and still have to punish them when they disobeyed. Right? I didn't realize how vital it would be to hand out consistently a balance of Love and teaching and example and discipline. And we love our girls probably more than we could put into words. But we love them enough to not let them just do whatever. You follow me? 
we're not just going to turn them loose as soon as they can walk and talk and say, all right, y'all, good luck. Hope you figure it out. That, that's, not how, that's not how you parent. So God has given my wife and myself the sacred responsibility of instructing our children in the, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We're accountable to teach them how to live according to Scripture and how to honor God in all things. And that's a challenge. It's a serious challenge. It's a privilege, but it's a challenge. But you know what the one thing that motivates us to do that more than anything else? Love. We love them more than anything else on this planet. It's why I'm so protective. It's why anytime any of my kids has an issue, I'm ready to go strangle somebody if I have to, in Jesus' name. I mean, you know what? Nobody's messing with my girls. So, if I love them that much and have to discipline them for their good, how much more do you think Jesus loves you? Jesus went to a cross to show His love. So when Jesus in His Word says clearly to us, this is how you are to live if you're going to be my child. That's the most loving thing He could possibly say. Because how much must He care about us if He's willing to do that? Right? And that's how much we are to love and care for one another. It's not enough for me to just try to kill the sin in my own life. I have to try to pay attention and care for all of you. And you should be trying to care and look out for everyone else. That's what a family does. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's why membership and discipline are so critical to the church. Let me show you just a reminder of our mission. It's on the front of every bulletin. It's on the website. There it is. Love God. Love people. Make disciples. And what do you suppose the best way to do that is? Membership. Discipline. Care. Compassion. We're supposed to walk this journey together. We all need help. So why not help each other, right? That's what that looks like. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.